As was mentioned earlier, we are blessed by God today with the privilege, the opportunity of assembling as we are this morning to do so in the handiwork of His creation and in all things to appreciate just how perfect and mighty and truly awesome our God of heaven is. We are blessed with visitors today as well as many who are regular members and we're thankful for each and every one. It's our trust and our prayer that the things that we do and say will be in strict accordance to the deliverance of the Word of God so that indeed our worship might be acceptable and pleasing before the eyes of whom we have to do, Hebrews 4 verse 13. As we're assembled on this morning, it's certainly entirely right to express appreciation again for Brother Harold and the lesson delivered last Lord's Day morning. I appreciate so much the opportunity in which our men are so capable and able to stand in this pulpit and deliver powerful and penetrating lessons from God's Word. And for that at Pippin, we're certainly blessed and very, very excited about the opportunity from time to time to hear those, those sound gospel lessons. As you can see, not only in the bulletin, but on the wall to my left, the title of the lesson this morning has a play of, on words in it, in a sense, whole or whole. And as you can see, the way I've written that question, the first word has a W, in fact, to, to begin it. The second one does not. Those two words, as we know in English, sound exactly alike, but their meaning is exceedingly different. In fact, so different are they that the context alone is easily able in almost all instances to identify which one we're discussing. Today, we shall discuss both of them at the appropriate time in our lesson. As we do so by way of an introduction, isn't it true that on so many occasions, you and I are prompted in life inasmuch as we encounter circumstances that challenge us to be reflective, that challenge us to be rather profound in thinking about the nature and course of our life. What am I doing here? What is the objective and the end of the way for me? What are those matters that should rise to highest priority in my life? Where is it that the focus of my directives ought to be? It is to be noted that all of us from time to time encounter those events. Maybe as you stand on the precipice of a major life's decision, perhaps thinking, do I ask her to marry me or not? and you think about the responsibility that shall be yours and hers together and the decision that once made can never be undone fully. Or maybe you suffer through the death of a loved one. And as you stand and think about the character of what that involves, it brings back the nature of what this life is all about. Or maybe a difficult sickness comes your way or to someone who's very near to you. We've each been there in one way or another maybe many times. It is to that regard that we again ask the question today, whole or whole? You'll notice near the bottom of that opening slide that some of the thoughts we shall see will in fact be broached directly by some of these matters, and so why not try to paint a big picture at first? It's always interesting, isn't it? As we begin to formulate a thought or approach a given subject in our mind, we first get in mind the large picture. What is it that's being addressed? And then we begin to pick apart the details. Might we do that this morning as we first put together the big picture? You and I live in a time when in so many ways and through so many avenues, there is a message that is proclaimed loudly and clearly from the mouth of many that the human family in every way it is in fact presenting is ultimately the result of some evolutionary process where, in fact, there was no guiding mechanism. 
It was nothing but blind chance, genetic mutation, and survival of the fittest. That's what we're told. And yet you and I appreciate from all that is around us that that is nonsense of the highest order. Actually, nonsense of the highest order. We know fully well that about us is every piece of design that there was a maker to all of this. His fingerprints are all over it. Not only of that which is about us, but of you and me individually. And Paul, in fact, had something to say about that in Romans 1.20 when he said, For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power in Godhead, so that they are without excuse. There shall be no excuses in that line of thinking on the day of judgment, for God says there will be none. I've given sufficient evidence to my existence and to the fact that I was the designer and the maker. As we give some thought to what that involves, you'll notice, though, what comes next with it. Just as surely as it was the God of heaven who made them, that then reminds you and me, we're not the result of mindless chance. We're not the result of some happenstantial evolutionary process. We're here with a purpose. We're here because an infinite being made us, prompted us in the way that He did, and in fact provided us with the opportunities that He set before us. It is, as you'll come near the middle part of that slide, let's now in fact use the Scriptures to directly point our attention to you and me as human beings, the human family. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul, per the words of Moses in Genesis 2-7. And wasn't it the Son of God Himself who, joining in that chorus in Mark 10 verse 6 said, From the beginning God made them male and female. From the beginning. There was no slow, gradual process of evolution. Jesus said from the beginning He made them that way. And today you and I stand as those made in the precious image of the God of heaven. Genesis 1.26 still says it all in that regard, doesn't it? Made in the image and in the likeness of God. It is with regard to that thought and with that thought in mind that maybe one last point with it might be made. You and I as made in the image of God are made with such honor. We are made with such a high degree of noteworthy integrity. Psalm 139 verse 14 puts it in words like this, I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. Marvelously made? Yes, indeed. As the psalmist uttered and echoed that sentiment, might we take that a step further and ask, what's the impetus behind it? And where does it naturally lead you? And where does it naturally lead me this morning? The big picture perhaps now begins to become clearer in focus, doesn't it? We live on a world that God has made. Everything about us, in fact, we appreciate from Him. We can see the beauty and the things in it. And what is so wrong, man has messed up. It wasn't God. What are those matters that are so lacking? Mankind is the one that is at fault, not the God of heaven. And now as we give thought to the human family and himself, look at these thoughts. You and I have the precious privilege and honor of living here upon God's footstool for a little while. We sojourn here, we breathe His air, we walk upon this thing we call earth. And all the while, 
we still must never forget this premise. That God has given us instruction. The time lived here is to be a time appreciative of the responsibility, the duty, and the accountability that goes with this sojourn. It's not what we'd call free time. It's not recess. In fact, it is a time in which the obligations might well be stated in language like this. Man is accountable for what he does. And that holds, of course, for you and for me. In Genesis chapter 3, after God had given the commandment relative to that tree in the midst of the garden, it was after Eve and Adam had partaken of that forbidden fruit that God, of course, knew what they had done. And He came walking in the garden in the cool of the day, Genesis 3, verses 8 and 9. And it was on that occasion a conversation ensued. And how well we remember the initial approaches that were taken. Adam said, the woman you gave me, she made me do it. She gave me the fruit and I ate of it. The woman said, the serpent made me do it. God accepted not the slightest whit of that line of reasoning. Adam, you're at fault. I gave you instruction, you knew what I said, and you disobeyed. Eve, you are at fault. It's true, the serpent tempted you, but you are at fault because you knew my instructions and you disobeyed. And then, of course, the serpent, God punished him also. On thy belly thou shalt crawl and eat the dust of the earth all the days of thy life. All the while we see in that the realization, though, of the coming of the Messiah and the opportunity to be saved from sin. But might we never forget, those two, Adam and Eve, are responsible for what they did. Today, our world often needs a double dose of appreciation about the matter of responsibility. So often, we try to cast the blame on somebody else. My parents made me do it. My grandparents messed up and I'm thus suffering because of it. There's no question we may suffer the consequences of the actions of another. But in the final analysis, we each will stand on our own two feet before the God of heaven. And we'll give an answer for the deeds done in the body. There will be no blaming it on dad and mom. There will be no blaming it on grandpa and grandma. No blaming it on what our employer may or may not have done. It will be a responsiveness to what we have done. In fact, I've tried to write that in ways like this. There is coming that appointment that the Bible calls death. We mentioned earlier that this time of life is a time in which we can so majestically see all that God has provided. But of course, the Bible over and again says that I must go the way of all the earth, 1 Kings 2.2. 2. We remember that the Hebrew writer put it perhaps in the most memorable words of all, Hebrews 9 verse 27, the realization of the appointment of death. As we give thought to that reality of death, doesn't it point us back to the realization what am I doing here? Am I ordering my life following the objective that God would have for me in the coming of His Son and what the Son has made possible? It is a sobering question, isn't it? It's at this point, whole or whole? As you give thought to the reality of that judgment, the Bible, in fact, on so many occasions, points us to the fact that's going to happen. It's amazing, isn't it, how sometimes in this life we hope so desperately that something won't happen. Maybe at work we know that there's a very great possibility that an uncomfortable meeting is going to happen. 
the boss is going to be present, the current quarter isn't going well, and probably the meeting is not going to be pleasant. And we hope that the meeting doesn't come to fruition. Maybe on another occasion, a community has a meeting or a school has a meeting, and we know the news probably isn't going to be good. Might I suggest to each of us, there is no possibility that judgment is not going to happen. It is going to happen. Just as surely as death occurs, so too will judgment. Consider just a few of these verses. In Romans 14, 12, So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. In another passage, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Notice as we appear on that occasion, what shall happen? To receive the things done in the body, according to that He hath done, whether good or bad. Later on, we appreciate in Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, the times of this ignorance God winked at. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because He hath appointed a day in the which He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He hath ordained, whereof He hath given assurance unto all men in that He hath raised Him from the dead. There is coming an occasion of judgment when you and when I will stand before the presence of the God of heaven and give an answer for all that was done or said or thought in the reality of this life in the flesh of our body. Isn't that a rather amazing thing to consider? Every thought you've ever had, every word you've ever spoken, every deed you ever did, the God of heaven's got a record of it. If it was a noble and worthy thing, there is no issue or problem, but if it was in any way sinful, and if it is thus brought to bear on that day, what then does that mean? It means for all of eternity, there's not going to be a place from heaven for you and me. It means as we stand there and give that accounting, we are in desperate need of being forgiven of any and all sin that ever existed in any way in our life. And so it is. Near the bottom of that slide, what does that then mean about this life? This thing, this reality that you and I call life. That baby is born, it proceeds to grow and to learn and to become wiser with regard to the things of this world. So many times life brings times of enjoyment, pleasure, it brings times of celebration. But may we never forget that though those are wonderful things to note, this life is deadly serious. It's not a game. It's not a time of recess as we said before. It's intensely serious. Whole or whole? With regard to those matters, the fine details now before us take a rather dramatic turn. The Word of God, as it sets these issues before you and me, paints the following picture and does so in vivid detail. The picture, in fact, is this one. As far as all of eternity goes, and as far as the entirety of the Word of God sets forth, it is an all-or-nothing arrangement. That's it. It's all or nothing. There is no middle ground. One is either for the Lord and on His side and saved in His presence, or one is lost and undone and at that moment with no hope of heaven. There is no middle ground. Jesus Himself stated in Matthew 12, verse 30, He that is not with me scattereth abroad. Same thing repeated in Luke 9. 
But in all of that, can we not build some details that help us appreciate the magnitude of that thought in the following way? That second comment, human life, as you and I appreciate it and come to recognize and know it, is truly an arrangement that the Scriptures declare is a whole with a W, or it's a whole without a W. As you give thought to all that means, consider the accountability of us. If it's the case, and indeed it is, that you and I must stand before God and give an accounting for all that took place in this life in regard to you and me, that means that accountability leads to great responsibility. How responsible are you and how responsible am I with respect to the obligations God has given? Am I doing my best at it? Am I trying to stand rightfully, justly, and godly in His sight? In fact, that is the urgency of the moment, isn't it? Titus 2, beginning in verse 11, "...the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all me in teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world." How are we to live here? Soberly, righteously, godly. Am I doing that? Are you doing that? It is not an idle question, is it? For all of eternity will hang in the response that you and I are able to give. As you'll notice, one of the next thoughts then naturally is this one. That reality that you and I earlier considered as sin, it is merely a transgression of God's law, isn't it? 1 John 3, 4. Whosoever sinneth transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And here is the law to which the Scriptures refer. This is it. We aren't talking about constitutional American law. We aren't talking about international law via the United Nations. We aren't discussing even laws separate and apart from them. We're discussing God's law. The law of Christ, Galatians 6.2. That law to which the inspired apostle referred in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 23 to 25. Thus, with regard to this law, how are you and I standing at the present moment? If life for you or me were to end this afternoon, tonight, perhaps early tomorrow morning, if we are not to rise to see the Monday that you and I call a Monday morning, where will you and I spend eternity? One thing is for certain, there's no fixing it after death. We are told in this life, as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment, it must be fixed now. What do you and I do with sin? Might we notice God took the initiative. Adam and Eve, you see, couldn't forgive their own sin. They were tarnished and marred. They had in fact committed this violation of God's law and in that standing they couldn't offer a sacrifice for themselves. And it's still true, isn't it, that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. Hebrews 10.4 The God of heaven in His magnificent love for you and me and every human being that's ever lived, sent a part of Himself, the one we call the Son. And that Son was born to Joseph and Mary there in that Bethlehem location and proceeded to grow and to mature and to live. But all the while through that life there was the cross at the end. He lived in the shadow of the cross from the moment He was born. You see, that's why He came. He didn't come just to live. He came to die. 
We don't often like to think about a baby being born to die because it's got a life ahead of it. All the enjoyment that goes with its life here, but literally the Savior was born to die. And on that cross He died, not for Himself, but for you and me. He took my place there and yours, and He paid the price for my sins and yours so that we could stand justified and sanctified and whole with a W before the presence of our God of heaven. That's why He came and that's why He died. In regard to that, consider some of these thoughts if you would. What did He save us from? Romans 3 verse 23 says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Three chapters to the verse later, we learn in chapter 6 verse 23 that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He came to save us from death and to allow us to have life. A life that's whole, spelled with a W. Notice that as we give thought to whole, spelled with a W, doesn't it challenge us to think one more time about that judgment and some of the portraits that the Scriptures give us of that location and of that reality? There at the bottom, there is one verdict that we all no doubt wish to hear on that occasion. For the Bible portrays it in some of the grandest of ways with some of the descriptions that almost are beyond our ability to fully fathom. To say it's favorable is a bit of an understatement. It's put in language like this. In Matthew, the 13th chapter, being gathered into God's barn. We find elsewhere in Matthew 25, we describe it or see it described like this. When the Lord shall say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. Be thou ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joys of thy Lord. And on that day, how sweet it will be to hear God through the character of the Son say that to you and to me. Those that are faithful, those who have organized and arranged their life following the respectable and honorable pattern of the Scriptures, and thus to appreciate that they've been dutiful with respect to God's commandments. However, those statements of Revelation 22 describe a place in which there is, of course, a dramatic requirement. Revelation 22:14 puts it in these words. Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. That city is heaven. And you'll note that requirements for entrance are these, doing His commandments. That brings us to the question, what about those who have failed to do His commandments? Those who for whatever the reason or excuse may or may not have been, they simply haven't done His commandments. The intent may or may not have been there, it doesn't matter. The simple fact is they did not do them. We see here a description also that is horrible. Truly and utterly horrible. Jesus spoke of it on many occasions and even so did John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse number 10, we find John describing an occasion when one, and he was speaking of the Christ that was to follow him, one shall sit in judgment and he will purge his floor. All of those found unworthy will not be allowed to remain. They will in fact be blown away, if you please, and they shall forever be in a place described in language like this. Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. 
the honorable nature of this life and its duty, enter ye into the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Oh, how grand is the few. Grand because they have been aware of their responsibility before their Maker. They have been aware of the law that He has so lovingly provided, and with intensity and earnestness they have directed their lives to an obedience to it. Beyond that, we notice also in Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15, there is a description of, first of all, those who are there when the books are opened, and of course that's all of us. But he quickly brings us to note the fate of those whose names are not in the book of life. In other words, those who are not whole with a W, whole without a W. They're not whole before God. They are holy before God, again, without the W. They are those that are bereft of that which they need. They're incomplete. No wonder the Bible on so many occasions describes that fate. First of all, persons who have obeyed the Son. Oh, eternal life is that which is the blessedness of their fate. Didn't Jesus speak about that Himself in Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9? Though He were a Son, yet learned He obedience by the things which He suffered. And being made perfect, He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey Him. Eternal life is promised to those that are the obedient. Intent wasn't sufficient. Merely having some particular kind of thinking isn't sufficient. It's those who have obeyed Him. As you can see also in that following verse, the one following the Hebrews 5 passage, Paul joined in that refrain so majestically. The Holy Spirit, of course, as His guide in Romans 6, beginning in verse 16. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, and being made free from sin, ye became the author, or the recipients, the servants, if you will, of righteousness. On that occasion, again, the choices are but two. Do you and I yield ourselves as servants of righteousness? Or do we yield ourselves as servants to unrighteousness? There's no third option. Is it any wonder then that the Bible holds out for us to never forget that this life is in fact a time of seriousness? Where are you and I headed? Are our eyes fixed and focused upon the eternal reward? Or do we allow ourselves to be digressed and deviated off the path of eternal salvation? That points us to this next thought. Those who have not obeyed the Son, Matthew 25, 46, it says that eternal punishment, eternal damnation is in fact their lot. It thus is no wonder that Ecclesiastes 12, 13 puts it in these words. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And that's spelled with a W, the whole duty of man. The question then that comes at this point to you and me certainly is this one. With regard to my life and yours, is it whole with a W or is it whole without a W? 
If it's whole with a W, then you and I have every right to wear a rather wide and dramatic smile because our sins have been forgiven. Our name is in the book of life. We're members of the body of Christ. We're thankfully able day by day to pray to a Heavenly Father who has promised to hear and answer. And our life is filled with all the rewards that He has promised through the Word and through the Holy Spirit. But if my life or yours is one without the W, then it really is just a hole. And it's empty. Jesus said in John 15, 8, Without me, ye can do nothing. Without the Savior, my life is more than just a hole. It's a colossal hole. It's fully empty. There's nothing of any eternal goodness to be found in it at all because life is to be found in the Son. John 10, 10 said, Jesus speaking, I came that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Without the Savior, there is no eternal life. For did He not say in John chapter 11, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Me. John 14, 6. And did He not say in John eleven twenty five, 25, I'm the resurrection and the life. On many occasions, Jesus is the bread of life. John 6, 35. With regard to all these thoughts, perhaps we can conclude our lesson today with a challenging series of questions. Questions about the reality of whole or whole. As you put your name in a blank, where do you and I stand before God right now? Is it, are you whole with a W? That would require that you have conformed your life, not to the world, but rather by transformation to what's revealed in the Word of God. Have you been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins? That's the one and only way the Scriptures teach that a person as an alien sinner can have those sins forgiven. And thus, if you haven't attended to that, friend, you are whole just with an H. Christ is not present with you. To this point in your life, you have neglected Him, overlooked Him, ignored Him. You have in fact turned your back on the cross at Calvary and have to this point paraded yourself as if you don't need Him. Please think urgently about your current situation. Please think with intensity about whole or whole. If you have been a faithful member of the body of Christ at some time, but you haven't been faithful with regard to that duty and obligation. Remember, the Scriptures still say, Be thou faithful unto death, and I'll give thee a crown of life. Revelation 2.10 If thus you haven't continued in that walk of faithfulness, then you are in line with those like Demas, who have forsaken the white way and love this present world, or you are in the line of others described in the New Testament as falling from grace. Galatians 5 verse 4 If you need to come back to your rightful place at the Lord's side. And certainly that is a need. But if you realize its urgency today, we'll pray with you and for you. That has been the things ascribed in the New Testament to do in those situations. If your baptism was scriptural, you don't need to be rebaptized. If you have questions about your baptism, let us talk about it, the elders or you or myself. And let us, in fact, make the decision that's best from the perspective of eternity. This morning, the decision, though, takes us to that third thing. If you are a faithful member of the body of Christ, a member, of course, of the church, one who has been baptized and who is living faithfully, then, in fact, what a marvelous state of life you're in. 
Continue to be faithful. Continue to be that which edifies others and walks the straight and narrow way for yourself. And you will be a blessing not only to yourself but to so many others. I mentioned as the title of the lesson, Whole or Whole. If this morning your life is one without a W, you need to come forward. There will never be a better day than this one, the 24th of April, 2011. It could be a day that changes all eternity for you. The Lord has loved you. He died for you. He gave His law for you. And your obligation is to obey it. And if we could be of assistance to you, why not today? We're going to stand in just a moment and sing this hymn of encouragement. And if we could be of a service, assistance to you and your responsibleness to the gospel, why not today? So that you can be whole, spelled with a W. If you need to come, why not do that while together we stand and while we sing?